you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. And this week is the opening week of Spectacular Spider Month. Which is a story that you picked. So you go ahead and do the honors. Well, we're reading If This Be My Destiny. That's uh, Amazing Spider-Man 31 through 33. Um, if you were child me, you thought of this as the Master Saga, which is a name I insist someone must have said somewhere, but I am not able to figure out if anyone actually has. Um, this is the one where Spider-Man lifts the heavy thing. You have seen a scene of Spider-Man lifting a heavy thing. Even if you've not read this comic, that is because every time they do it, they're calling back to this one. Yeah, like that specific couple of pages I've just sort of known about for as long as I can remember without ever really knowing the full context of what story they were in because I had never read all of this before. Today, I had read, like, the very end with the iconic scene, but my, like, black and white essential volumes as a kid didn't get this far, so I am not very familiar with this later Ditko period of Spider-Man. Essentials Volume 2 was my favorite one as a kid, because it had this and it had annual number two. With Doctor Strange. I think Strange. it must be volume two, considering how many issues they cover. I'm not sure. Was annual to the Doctor Strange one? Yes, the Doctor Strange story that we've previously covered. Um, am I just picking my favorites from the early Lee Dicko era whenever we cover this sort of thing? Yes. Um, I will say that I think that this Spider-Man story is Spider-Man's Days of Future Past. So the way that I argue Days of Future Past is the thing that cements what the X-Men are about um, back when we did our very first X-Men month. This did the same thing for Spider-Man, in my opinion. It, all of the elements were there, but this is the coalescence of basically most of what we're going to be dealing with for the majority of the character's history going forward. Yeah. It feels very classic. It's sort of like every aspect of what I would think about in a sort of I don't know representational distilled just like when I think of a Spider-Man plot all the different aspects of it are just sort of simultaneously put together in this for every type of angst to coalesce yeah I, I mean this has Art Mace dying 
uh it connects the like the plot where Aunt May is dying to the crime villain plot, which wasn't something they'd done a lot of before, where like there's this direct consequence of you know the crime supervillain stuff affecting Peter's personal life in more ways than just him being like late to shit, you know, and not turning up on a date. This is when it's like, oh, you know, he's got to, he can't solve his regular life problem until he solves his superhero problem. But even then, the regular life problem of this, Aunt May's sick because of his, like, and then, um, obviously this introduces Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy to the comics for the first time. It's the first time Flash is even, like, vaguely friendly to Peter. Which, considering he's still an ass in this, um, you know, I think says more about Flash's, like, characterization during the high school years, but this is the start of the turnaround on that character, and Flash is now one of Peter Parker's oldest friends. Um, yeah, I, it also, I think, is one of the peaks of the visual storytelling of, like, this moment in comics i think ditko does some really amazing stuff here uh there's the obvious lifting the heavy thing sequence which we'll talk about at length but one thing that i think is not something you immediately think about when you read this but almost all of this story is on a nine panel grid or at least like, like close yeah because if a page isn't literally nine panels we frequently get ones that are like eight or at the least seven with just like some of the rows being slightly elongated and panel size but yeah it's definitely giving that sort of basic structure even when it strays from it slightly this is a step closer to, and I mean, obviously it's a bit of a cliche to say this, but like nine panel grid, this is a step closer to Watchmen because Watchmen did the same thing where it had the nine panel grid, but then, you know, sometimes panels would get blended together in order to make a moment last longer. And the, the fact that this is structured like this is kind of a, like normally you would see a six panel grid in these days. And there are definitely plenty of six panel grid pages. And there's this weird thing where a nine-panel grid page will have one row which has two panels of equal size, so making it like a nine-panel and six-panel grid fusion. And obviously, like, the way that Ditko is laying out these panels, it's not quite the effect that you get with, like, Gibbons on Watchmen. But it's a step in that direction, and it's really interesting seeing this on like spider-man well to the point of like six panel pages being more typical to marvel style at that time it really feels like he has to try and pack in all this extra action because these issues are dense and like not to overgeneralize and say that, you know, that every issue at that time period would have been a one and done because that's not the case. But this still feels to me like 
a notably extended single story in length for the context of the time when it was coming out because yeah just like not only a two-parter but a three-parter and one that has so much going on and that if a modern artist was trying to do would be at least a trade paperbacks worth of issues yeah no a three-parter is basically i've read a lot of 60s marvel this is the earliest three-parter that I can think of. I can't, I can't even think of other three-parters right now, to be honest. It's been a while since I, I went through all of those books. I'm sure there must be some others, but there's, there's not many. It's rare that you do something this epic. Speaking of which, we should probably quickly do a creator roll call. Um, so these issues, and he's not credited for this, but we can probably assume it for the first issue. Steve Ditko on plotting, and then also doing the art. There's no colorist credit, so who knows. The scripting is by Stan Lee, and then the lettering on 31 is by Sam Rosen, and on 32, 33 is by Art Simek. Back in the day when Marvel never credited colorists, and the best we have is just, like, some after-the-fact information for some series that's incomplete, and off of people's memories. Shit sucks. Yeah, there's nothing on Marvel Unlimited about it. So I'm just going to assume that no one knows well enough to be able to say. So here we are. <laughs> I worry that I might come off a bit sacrilegious at points today. Because I think that this story is more sort of archetypal and... I don't know if that's even the word I'm searching for, but just like sort of what we were getting at earlier, it is more of a good example of a classic Spider-Man story in terms of what it's doing and influence than I necessarily think that it is a really high quality read, at least through a modern lens. Does that make any sense? No, that makes perfect sense. I have critiques. I actually do have critiques. They're mostly um, Steve Ditko-aimed critiques. I will be... It, it's all Ditko talk today, and it's it's the good and the bad of the Ditko. Yeah. I guess, where do you want to start? Uh, let's just quickly run through the, the sort of events of the story, and we can talk about stuff as it comes up. The opening of issue 31 is a bunch of criminals in masks carrying out a villainous plan to steal some, like, radioactive technology when they're interrupted by Spider-Man. Um, they're very well organized, very well set up. They have, you know, they they say they use emergency plan G, which means they have, you know, quite a few pl backup plans come up with to deal with something like Spider-Man showing up. Like, and they refer to being led by someone called the Master Planner. And so while Spider-Man is fighting them, um, they, like, drop what they were trying to steal into the water. And then other criminals in the same getup come out in scuba diving gear and get it. And so even though Spider-Man is able to wreck their helicopter and, like, stop them from getting away or so he fought... They actually all get away, 
and not only that they all like use their new their scuba gear in order to escape without like spider-man even being aware of like where they could have gone meanwhile the next day peter is like off to his first day at college and we get it's a pretty fun like montage of images i don't again this is one of those things where i'm like how often was this done where it's not actually panels but overlapping images just showing the like chaos of this day there's really good interesting visual storytelling here um we also find out that aunt may is feeling very ill and in fact that night she faints in front of peter and God, you can tell it's the 60s. They call a doctor and he comes round to the house. That was crazy, yeah. This is like, holy shit. Also, um, I'm really... Who? I, I guess Aunt May is on Medicaid? Maybe? Health insurance? I'm like, she's, she's not got a job. She doesn't do anything. Peter doesn't have a job. Who's got health insurance here? I have no idea of the intricacies of New York State healthcare in like 1964. He is worried about medical expenses so um, this is once again a comic you could only do in America. Yeah, very much a Spider-Man struggling with being poor story. And so Peter is so worried about Aunt May that he stays up all night unable to get any sleep which might be because he's sitting in a fucking armchair instead of trying to lie down in bed fully dressed comics code authority i mean he could be wearing pajamas pajamas were okay but this looks just like his regular outfit which is uh this incredibly bright yellow sweater and a collar trying to fall asleep in, like, a tight collared shirt. Sitting up next to an open window. And so, of course, it is first day at college at ESU, which is where Spider-Man will be set for the next, um, I don't know, I think it's, like, at least a decade before they have him graduate college. Like, they got him out of high school in, inside of, in about, like, three to four years, because the original run of comics was, like, nearly real time. But then... Marvel realized everyone was getting too old too quick, and Marvel time happens, like, just after this. But there we are introduced to Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy, who have already made friends with Flash Thompson, who was, like, Peter's high school bully. And so we're introduced to two of the most important Spider-Man supporting characters. And, uh, they, they kind of suck. <laughs> Harry really sucks. Harry's a dickhead. He gets that from his dad. He also gets his horrible hair from his dad, which uh, it's it's very funny. So not long after this, uh, when Peter like discovers that the Green Goblin is Norman Osborn, which I think is in like maybe 10, 15 issues, um, he's never met Norman before, but he recognizes him because of the hair. The just really terribly rendered yeah whatever the fuck this is i think it's meant to be like a gelled back wavy thing because he's rich and it's like a like but like with the hairline it looks so weird 
And it's not like Ditko can't draw hair because everyone else looks fine. Yeah, that hairline is truly, truly something only a supervillain could have. Harry's not a supervillain for a while. But yeah, um, the, the hairline is maybe a hint at the Green Goblin because, well, actually, no, it can't be because Ditko didn't want Norman to be the Green Goblin. This is why the Green Goblin is revealed, like, one issue after John Romita Sr. takes over drawing the book from Ditko when Ditko quits. Um, Ditko wanted the Green Goblin to just be, like, a random guy with absolutely no connection to Spider-Man outside of, like, being a villain Spider-Man has fought. Like, he wanted the reveal to be a non-reveal. You know, if they have Goblin take off his mask and it's just some guy. Which is almost interesting, but obviously the um, the Osborne family drama has paid dividends for decades of stories and is now one of those interminable things that I wish the comic could get rid of somehow, but they, they never will be able to stop doing Osborne family drama. More about that in the last week of this month, my, my Osborne thoughts. But basically, Peter is so distracted by just running around thinking about how Aunt May is, like, maybe dying right now and he's here and it's dumb that he's here, that he doesn't notice anyone trying to interact with him. This includes when Gwen Stacy tries to flirt with him, which just pisses her off. Uh, the implication is every single time she's ever tried to flirt with a guy, or indeed has been seen by a guy before, he has immediately gotten, like, cartoon heart eyeballs and dropped his jaw in amazement. I will say that compared to Betty Brandt earlier in this run, Gwen Stacy is a breath of fresh air. By comparison to Betty Brandt, Gwen Stacy is a feminist character. Yeah, like, we'll get more into but, it, I suppose. But Betty Brandt is very much just treated as a frail creature that would be blown away in the wind, whereas... Gwen is allowed to be angry. Yeah, she's angry for stupid reasons. And, like, is hanging around Harry, who so far has only been characterized as a dumbass who hangs out with Flash Thompson. Like, the thing is, because they're hanging out with Flash, even though, you know, when I read this, I already knew about Harry and Gwen, and I knew that Flash would eventually become friends with Peter. And this is setting up that arc. That is something that happens fairly soon. But when you're reading this here, in the context of this story, Harry and Gwen are two new bullies. And Gwen is the new Liz Allen, who is the one who is, like, bullying Peter, but is also into him. Which was the dynamic in high school. Like, it's very much a replication of that dynamic, but with some new characters. And also, Flash is still here. So then Peter stays out all night as Spider-Man, desperately trying to find a crime to take pictures of. And winds up with another day at college that's basically a repeat of the first. So things start picking up again when he is flagged down by Patch, who is Frederick Foswell, the former big man of crime, but now a reporter for the Daily Bugle. I can't remember what happens to Foswell in the end. I'm sure he dies at some point, but I can't remember what happened. Mind you, isn't there a big man right now? Is that Foswell again? Is he doing... I don't know. 
this was an ongoing storyline with this character at the time, but basically he knows that the master plan is going to strike, but he's not able to prove it so that the police will show up. So he sends Peter there, and he's much more successful and is able to prevent them from like stealing the tech they were trying to steal, because once again, they're trying to steal like radiation-related technology. But the whole group is still able to escape. And he wasn't able to get any pictures. And so as we end the comic where um, we see the Master Planner's base, which is like this big underwater base. Where he got the money for this fucking thing, I don't know. But he's got a big Bond villain base and he's in it and he's ranting about how he's going to be able to rule the world with his radiation tech so long as he makes sure that next time he meets Spider-Man it'll be Spider-Man's last time ever running into him. And we also find out that Aunt May is officially dying. The least surprising news in all of comics. This lady is so old and frail, like, already. She is still kicking around in comics right now. It's insane that she's still around. They've killed her off multiple times, and it just never sticks. I don't know why Marvel Editorial is so attached to this lady. I suppose she's his main reliable voice of reason slash character to eternally love and feel anxiety about since he's not allowed to keep a girlfriend anymore. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Whenever she shows up now, I'm just sort of like, I I know that Peter remembers when he told her that she, well, when she found out that he was Spider-Man and she wound up coping with it really well. And that their relationship grew a lot stronger and much better when he wasn't keeping secrets from her. But now that she doesn't know again, he's not telling her. And I'm like, but you literally have proof that she can handle it. And that once it's out in the open, you two will have a better, stronger relationship. It just, I'm I'm physically bothered by the presence of Aunt May in comics these days, post one more day. Every time she shows up, I'm always just like, ah! But anyway... Back to this comic. We're back when Spider-Man comics could be good on a regular basis. I say that as though there are like some post-brand new day stories that I love. There are some. There's there's at least five. At least five in about a 15 to 20 year period. Yeah, yeah, it's damn near 20 years at this point. Which is a depressing thought, but like it's not that there's, I mean, there's been a lot of good stories. And when I say great, I do actually mean great. Like, I would be like, oh, yeah, this one rules. But there's nowhere near as many as there should have been. And frankly, not all of that is the brand new day stuff. It's just that marks a point for me where editorial on Spider-Man has just sort of made it really difficult to write a good Spider-Man book. Regardless of whether you are, like, worried about the marriage and all that. But we'll talk about that later this month. Right now, we're heading into issue 32, which is where this story really kicks off, because it's immediately revealed, because we're not going to keep this secret for more than an extra page, but the master planner is Dr. Octopus. Another very non-reveal. Well, I, certainly in hindsight, I think everybody knows that the master planner was Doc Ock. To the point where, like, Spectacular Spider-Man, the, the cartoon, which is the best Spider-Man adaptation, and, um, well, arguably, 
It's the second best, actually. I'm going to give it to Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse because they get to have Miles. But it's not Spectacular Spider-Man's fault they didn't have Miles. That was from before Miles was a thing. But in that cartoon, they had done a lot of trickery to make it so that the reveal that Norman Osborn was the Green Goblin was still a reveal because they made it so that, A, they very plausibly revealed that it was Harry and then later on revealed that Norman had set Harry up and they'd had the chameleon pretend to be Norman. So Norman and the Green Goblin were like in the same room at the same time. So like when you're watching the show, you're like, oh, they've done it different this time. Even they did not really do a very good job of making you not know that the master planner was Dr. Octopus when they adapted this story. They tried, but they didn't do a great job of it. Well, the thing is that it's just, it's too short of a story to really build up suspense over who a mystery character is. You know, like the name is literally only thrown around for a single issue before it's revealed who he is which part of that is just how old it is and how short most marvel stories would have been at the time but you know just certainly looking back and reading it now a single story or rather a single issue's worth of build-up does not really feel sufficient to at all just sort of like drum up excitement or mystery you know because it's also not like there's any sort of like laying down of clues of who it is it's just oh these guys have a boss now we know who the boss is there is one clue however considering it's 60s marvel comics i don't know how good of a clue it is and the clue is that everything they're stealing is radiation related tech and while Doc Ock is, like, the Spider-Man villain who loves, like, he is a radiation scientist, it is 60s Marvel, and fucking everyone loves radiation. It's all about radiation, yeah, it's all nuclear age fear stuff. Like, Green Goblin could have a radiation plan, you know, and there's nothing to separate him. I do think it would have been stronger. This is my, my first real critique of this. Doc Ock is revealed here, you know, doing his, like, solo rant in his basement. And obviously later in this issue, Peter meets him. And I think that that page would have been a really great reveal if they didn't reveal it here. I've always thought it was weird that they didn't just leave it to the bit in the issue where Peter finds out. Yeah, there's really no reason why we as the reader need to find out who it is before peter does i'm wondering if maybe it's like some anxiety on the part of um ditko who plotted and therefore presumably drew this before like lee had any input at all about the whole idea of keeping the villain secret like you know even at this point a selling point would be hey we have this beloved villain in this issue so having the reveal in the first few pages means that when the kid grabs this comic at the store and looks at the first page or two, you know, they're like, oh, I love Doc Ock. I'll read this one. Yeah. Which, you know, we're like, what, three years into Spider-Man comics at this point, essentially. But like, I that would have already, that's already a thing. Now, we have all of this stupid stuff in this issue of Betty Brant. So, um, 
I guess depending on your familiarity with Spider-Man love interest, Betty Brandt is J. Jonah Jameson's secretary and is the worst and is Peter Parker's quote-unquote first love. I will note that even Peter does not think that these days. He always just thinks about Gwen Stacy as basically being the first person he dated, which, like, she wasn't because of Betty. But, um... Basically, Peter pretends to be an asshole in order to try and, like, just get Betty to break up with him because he doesn't want to explain the thing that she... Basically, she wants to know what's up with Peter, and he doesn't want to tell her that he's Spider-Man. And so he's just going to be a dick at her. So she breaks up with him without getting closure. Uh, This is where I can really feel the dick go. Peter is in these, like, issues and in the remainder of the run while Ditko is plotting and drawing, which isn't that much longer from here. Um, he's, he's a dickhead. He's very self-involved. He, every social interaction is, like, sometimes framed around the idea that this other person won't ever be able to understand what's going on with me and can't possibly relate to me. And I can't possibly explain because how could they ever understand the way that I feel? Which then just results in them saying, Peter saying like terrible shit in this, or in this case, you know, physically attacking Ned, who is trying to propose, well, he's he's proposed to Betty and like, it's pretty clear that Betty wants to marry him, but she wants closure with Peter first. And rather than like, just making something up or anything. He's just acting like an asshole because he's like, oh, it's better for her and me if it's a clean break. It's a tendency that you, that really ramps up with Ditko on plotting. It's it's a notable shift in the characterization of Peter Parker. And it is what eventually leads to Peter shouting angrily at protesters of the Vietnam War about how dumb they are in a few issues part of it is layered in some scenes and then other parts it's just just him being an asshole because like with the college scenes where like part of the subplot is just him being perpetually tired and worried because he is worried about aunt may and is spending all nights swinging around a Spider-Man to try and take pictures. So he's not getting any sleep. So he's just sort of, you know, ignoring everybody else. Not always even intentionally so much as just being in his own head. You know, leading to the everyone else thinks he's a dick storyline. Which is like, there's still some level of sympathy to have for him there. But then you get to the Betty Brandt stuff and it's just like proving everyone else right because, you know, call it an act all you want. But at the end of the day, he is still literally breaking shit in the Daily Bugle office and screaming at people. So like, you know, he's doing that regardless of whatever the reasons are. And as much as his reasoning sucks, 
in Betty's specific case, it also just sort of proves the condescending view that he has of her because after watching enough of this, she's just like, I can't deal with an unstable man in my life again. I'm Betty Brant. I fly in the wind like a plastic trash bag. I'm not strong enough. I could never deal with if he told me he was Spider-Man. So I'm going to go fuck off off page and not be prominent anymore. So he can date the new blonde girl. Yeah, Betty Brant suffers from what I would say is a Lee problem. Um, in that before he introduced Mary Jane, Stanley could not write an interesting woman to save his life. They all are just like early characterization of Sue Storm or Jean Grey, where here is bland, nice lady, lady. She is woman. Just really, really lacking in personality other than sometimes the sheer anxiety and weakness compared to men becomes the personality. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's Betty Brant, and this is why her character in modern comics is written entirely differently. No one looks back to this for characterization of Betty Brant. They make up their own shit. Which isn't something you have to do for most Spider-Man characters, but is absolutely something you have to do for Betty. And it's something that everyone does for Gwen now, but they didn't used to. But the Gwen situation is complicated because most of the time when you meet any kind of Gwen-related character now, they're pulling from Spider-Gwen and not from the actual Gwen Stacy, who is nothing like fucking Spider-Gwen. I say that as a big Spider-Gwen fan. There's nothing about that character that actually relates to Gwen Stacy beyond, like, the name. And blonde hair. Back to good things about this comic. Peter finds out that Aunt May is dying, and that not only is she, you know, dying, but she is dying because of radiation that has somehow gotten into her bloodstream. Which Peter realizes is from a blood transfusion he did last time she was fucking dying. But this is the second, this is issue 32. This is the second time she's been fucking dying, at least. Why is this woman still alive? Um, So he goes home and he has, I think, a far more justified angry fit where he smashes things. Uh, Where we need to talk about the way Steve Ditko uses characters' hands in ex- in like expressing their emotions. One thing you'll notice when you read any Ditko comic is that he really likes drawing hands in a way that no artist, no other artist does. No one likes drawing hands. They are weird and difficult to draw, but also something that basically everyone looks at all day. So when you don't have them right, you can tell them they look weird. But almost every panel that Ditko draws has someone's hands in it and those hands are always doing something they're always posed in very specific ways for example in this scene where Peter is you know angry and upset for the first three panels on this page we don't see his face and his emotions are entirely represented through body language and in the key sense of panel his hands 
where one is covering his face in anguish while the other is like curled up into a fist out of anger. Even scenes that aren't emotions as extreme as this, for example, uh, a pretty regular scene where J. Jonah Jameson is just looking at Peter's photographs and dismissing them as garbage. In each panel of that scene, Jonah's hand is front and center, in constant motion. It's it's a particular thing that he does. This is where Spider-Man's like little web flippy hand thing with the two fingers down in the middle comes from as well. That's just a thing Ditko likes to draw. I really love how Ditko draws hands. It's the best thing about his artwork. It's great. Have you noticed the hand thing? I don't think I really consciously thought about it before you pointed it out to me when we texted about it. Although, like, when I am specifically thinking about it, you know, it is apparent, like, just on every page, there are hands and hands and hands. And, you know, the six to nine panel grids leave a lot of room for a lot of hands. And, yeah, he is an artist that does not shy away from them. And they are well drawn and specifically the variety in them and motion and posing is just another nice facet of his skill set in terms of using the body language for character expression. It's nicely done. Yeah, it's it's my favorite thing about his art is the hand thing. Which, like, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And I swear, it's going to be every Ditko book you read. The hands. I also really love his paneling in the sequence here where Peter is, like, smashing the desk. It is just the nine-panel grid, but the um, the one where he is smashing this desk apart is, like, extended across the three panels in that row. And you can see everything on the desk flying off. To the sides it really emphasizes the strength of the blow it's just very good panel work well it's also specifically the middle row so it is also emphasizing it as a chaotic disruption in the middle of the otherwise orderly grid it's all the more effective as a visual contrast yeah yeah that's a really good point it is um I said it's weird how he is this close to establishing something almost as formal as like the storytelling in Watchmen in this 60s Spider-Man comic. I think that shows a lot of his tendencies. From what I understand, I've not read his question stuff that he does with Charlton after he leaves Marvel. But from what I understand, a lot of that is actually nine panel grids and is where Alan Moore got the inspiration for doing something as formal as the nine panel grids in Watchmen. So I guess it it might be a direct line, although that is some hearsay stuff that I've heard on a podcast. So, you know, but it wouldn't surprise me because the Charlton characters are who the Watchmen are based on. Yeah. So Peter shows up as Spider-Man and um, he's he's got Doc Connors to help him out. So the lizard, he's in New York now. This is the second time Dr. Connors has appeared. And gives him an ongoing role in Spider-Man stories. And they figure out a cure for Aunt May. But the important, like, substance that they need to finish it is 
stolen at the airport by the master planners goons and so peter heads out into the city trying to track them down and we get the kind of sequence that normally is like this is like normally you get batman doing this shit where he busts into a bar or something and is beating people up for information it's unusual at this point to see spider-man doing this in a comic but you know peter is nothing but determination to save aunt may He's destroying everything. We get a lot of really dynamic sequences of him tearing things apart and demanding information that no one actually knows. But Peter gets lucky, stumbles upon the Master Planner's, like, underground tunnel to his underground water base. How Doc Ock has this James Bond villain base, I do not fucking know. I kind of love it, but it's insane that he has this. I always like an underwater base. It's flawless. I just wonder where he got the resources. It also just, you know, they don't really emphasize it the way that they could, but Dr. Octopus makes sense, you know, even if they really never emphasize, or I guess I shouldn't say never because I have not read a wide enough breadth of Spider-Man material, but I'm not familiar with material really emphasizing him as an aquatic character because he's not other than just the name. Yeah, well, normally his tentacles don't even look very tentacly. Like, they don't have the kind of suckers that octopus tentacles have. You know, that, like, visual connection normally isn't even there. They are just, like, robot arms. Yeah. His newest design, um, which I think was designed by Patrick Gleason in the most recent Spider-Man story he appeared in, which I read the other day, did give him arms with like little suckers on them. And it's very rare that you even see that much. Normally it's just, yeah, they don't. He's just called that. <laughs> but yeah, Peter fights through most of these goons. You know, he fights his way into the base. And then we get what would have been a great reveal of Dr. Octopus as the Master Planner, except we found out earlier in this issue, and so it's not, like, it doesn't, it isn't a reveal. But the page where he has set up the ISO 36, which is the serum that Peter needs, in, like, the middle of the room to get Peter to come out, and then he grabs him with all of his tentacles and holds him upside down, and is like, so, we meet again, blah, 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 evil villain explaining. That would have been pretty neat, I think. But unfortunately, we didn't do that. But what leads... Uh, what follows is a pretty, like, intense fight between the two of them. Which, Peter is so angry and so determined at this point. But he has beaten him in two pages. I suppose this might be why Doc Ock doesn't show... Shows up earlier in the book. is because otherwise he would be in it for two pages. And he is fucking gone. I guess you would know better than I would if there's any examples before this of just like a story of Spider-Man being so pissed off and on the edge that he effectively mows over everything in his way like it feels here like it's supposed to be a shock. No, this is the first time they've done something like this. This is the first time where like this might be the first time where he's not been like 
semi-defeated and then had to go back and beat the villain properly again later. Like, he just takes out Doc Ock so quickly. <laughs> Unfortunately, their fight, because Spider-Man's uh, method of defeating Doc Ock was just throwing shit at him and wrecking his base, has resulted in the giant mechanical like machinery that Octavius has in his evil base to fall on top of Spider-Man, and he is nearly crushed by it. And he is, at the last second, able to hide under, like, a little groove in this huge piece of machinery. But he's now completely pinned down. The base is starting to flood because they broke the ceiling, and so the water of the river is coming in. And the serum he needs to save Aunt May is lying just out of reach, but he's never going to be able to get it. And so ends issue 32. All of that was one bloody issue. Laser dense comics of this time were generally denser than a lot of comics are now. But even by the standards of 60s Marvel, it really feels like they're just moving along at breakneck pace trying to fit the story in. Well, there's also a lot of um, soap opera stuff in this. All the stuff with Betty takes up quite a few pages of that last issue. Yeah, there's like, there's the action with Doc Ock. There's everything with Aunt May and then the hospital. There's Betty and everything at the Bugle. There's this other guy who works at the Bugle who we haven't really talked about who is sort of running around trying to get scoops. There's the yeah, whole... Yeah, well. Yeah, the whole first days of college thing, just... Which I guess contributes to also just, like, the sense of Peter being run ragged. You know, we have to be shown him being tugged in all of these different directions and just getting no sleep as he sits upright in his armchair. This is that first, like, real Spider-Man burnout story. And I will say this, the the third best Spider-Man adaptation right now, the Spider-Man video game series that Insomniac had been doing, both of the major games with Peter Parker in them, Spider-Man PS4 and Spider-Man 2 PS5, I guess is what we should refer to it, have pulled very directly from this story. Uh, anyone who's played the first game knows that Aunt May dies at the end. And the big finale of that game is Peter fighting Dr. Octopus for the cure to the disease that Aunt May is sick with. In case you're wondering what they decided was the Doc Ock story to pull most of their plot from. And Doc Ock and Aunt May have been weirdly connected ever since. Oh, well, that's because he tries to marry her in, um... I want to say around the 200s. But yeah, no, she, um... So she meets him during the first annual, which is the first Sinister Six story, and also the only Sinister Six story, I think, until the 90s. Like, it's only since the 90s that that's been a recurring thing, and not just a thing that happened in one annual. But she, like, doesn't realize that she's been kidnapped by supervillains because he's plight. So, like, Betty Brant is there shitting a brick, you know, scared shitless at this man, and he's just, like, pouring tea for them, and Aunt Mace is like, oh, how lovely. 
because she's a fucking idiot. No. And then, yeah, he lets a room from her, and then he winds up trying to marry her, and they really love that thing where Peter comes home to Aunt May's house, and Doc Ock is just sitting there, and she's just like, oh, Dr. Octavius came round again, and he's like, god damn it! Unfortunately, they don't interact here, but uh, Aunt May and Dr. Octopus interactions are some of my favorites. But here we are about to head into the second I, the second ever iconic Spider-Man moment after, you know, finding out about the burglar who killed Uncle Ben. This is the second time they've done something that is iconic that everyone will call back to constantly. Peter is trapped under this debris. He is exhausted. He has been running himself ragged for days. But he can't let Aunt May die. He won't do it. He will not fail her like he failed Uncle Ben. And so in an incredible four-page sequence, I think the most time we have spent on a single scene in all of these issues, he rises up pushing down on the ground and taking the full weight of this huge piece of machinery on his back. He gets underneath it. He gets his arms up, pushes up harder and harder until he's able to fully break away. And in a full page splash, a thing that you just do not see in these Ditko issues, he is fully freed from the heavy machinery. The way that this sequence is drawn is fantastic. This is the reason like looking back at this sequence is why I picked this for us to read. Um, as much as like the overall plot and the structure is so like fundamental to Spider-Man storytelling, but this is where every Spider-Man story sort of pulls from. So now this doesn't look remarkable, but at the time this combination of elements in one of these hadn't been done before. I think most of it still looks good to like specifically what you're saying about the breaking of the grid as it, you know, corresponds to the lifting he's doing. Like, I think those aspects of it look good. I think the dripping water of the leak against the machinery also look good. My one main qualm, I will say... And again, I guess I'm being sacrilegious, but I do not like the way that the faces of Aunt May and Uncle Ben look on the page as he's like thinking about them. And we get these like transposed side profiles of them that I think those just look kind of silly. I don't feel like I needed that, but... Otherwise, yeah, I think the sequence holds up. I think if those weren't there, Stanley wouldn't have known that Spider-Man was thinking about his aunt and uncle. Which feels like a hilarious thing to say, but I think that is so that the quote-unquote writer actually knows what's happening here when he's looking at this without any of the dialogue. That makes sense, yeah. Um, The thing I most want to talk about, so the the page where he starts lifting it up there's a six panel grid except it's not a grid at all because the panels get taller as you go further down the page 
and he starts to actually shift the wreckage. The use of the layout in order to like tell the story where he's not just straining against this machinery, but against essentially the confines of the panels he's in. It's really effective. And obviously, like, breaking, you know, most of the story, I'd say it would be rare to get less than six panels on a page in this story so far. There's been a couple pages with, like, four panels, because there's, like, a, a big sort of lower one. That Using that, like, full-page splash at the end for this moment really lands. Like, it, it's the paneling here that I think is the most successful aspect of this um obviously as a story beat this works it's been homage so many times it's in spider-man homecoming it's in the video game it's in the cartoons i think every cartoon has done this sequence at some point everyone worth watching has <laughs> put it that way i haven't seen the two like new disney ones but neither of them seem like they take the characters seriously enough to actually do something like this and then what follows is Peter A nearly drowning because the, the river finally flows in. And so he has to go limp and hope that the water will carry him through the like underwater tunnel to um like the entrance to the base. When he manages to get there, he is attacked by all of the Master Planner's goons who are all lined up, ready to stop him getting out. And he takes a brief rest to regain some strength by just letting them beat the shit out of him. And then fighting back once he's got like enough energy to do anything in this fury where he is still fighting even after they're all down. Because he is that out of it and that exhausted and burnt out. But he's able to make it. You know, he gets Connor's the isotope, the cure works, and they save Aunt May. He's even able to get, like, pictures for Jonah of the Master Planner's goons being taken away and gets Foswell a scoop on it to make up for him giving him, like, the clues he needed earlier in the story. And we end on it being made clear that Aunt May is going to recover and that she will be just fine for, um, I think it's maybe 20 issues before she, uh, winds up nearly dying again. I also really like the last four panels that we get on the story where um, the doctor who's been like taking care of Aunt May is closing the blinds as Peter is walking outside of the window and like literally that's just like closing sort of our view on the story. Meanwhile, he's thinking about how nice Peter Parker is and how it's a shame that there aren't more teenagers like him for like kids to imitate instead of mysterious unknown thrill seekers like spider-man that uh, parker luck as narrated from the bit character like even in his triumph of his most difficult adventure to date that you dear reader cannot miss keep buying spider-man for 12 cents an issue even after all of his struggle he succeeds and the doctor looks at him and is just like spider-man sucks after saving this old lady's life 
Yeah, the doctor knows that Spider-Man like came with the serum that they needed and had found a cure and had been working with renowned scientist Kurt Connors. And he's sort of just like, yeah, fuck that Spider-Man guy. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. I had actually forgotten that, yeah, this doctor explicitly knows Spider-Man saved this old lady's life. I wish this had a lot less dialogue. The more I look at this comic, the more I'm just like, Stan Lee, you didn't need to contribute as much. In fact, I think there might be chunks where I could interpret Peter a bit more charitably if you hadn't put this many words in his head. But, um, you know, when this is good, it's really good. It is, when this works, it is the best that, like, this character worked in the 60s. And it's among the best work that, like, Marvel did in the 60s. It's one of those things where it's difficult for me to tell how much of the way I feel about it is just being influenced by having read everything that references it before it, you know, so that it feels like, I guess I just have to wonder if it would feel less expected and, you know, just the consequence of being like, this is the classic Spidey plot is, oh, what if this have been legitimately more interesting and harder to predict the beats of reading it at the same time because it hadn't all become so so standardized to being this does that make any sense no that makes perfect sense to me um i will say as a young kid reading yeah i can confirm it was essential spider-man volume two this is one of the couple stories from that that really stuck in my memory. Yeah. Um, I I would say that if you are not overly familiar with all of the time since the 1960s, the people who have, you know, grown up on this and therefore have this as a baseline and have evolved it further as like in terms of the storytelling, in terms of the characterization, um, I think it's really strong. Like, yeah, it's the fundamental Spider-Man story that everyone's pulled from. And I, it is for a good reason. I think that it, it is as good as everyone says it is. But it's also, like, the thing that everyone has done. Yeah. I guess just some miscellaneous things to note, since we basically got through all the plot. I'll just note that the drawings of water are really good as he's being rained down upon from the roof with just the whole river leaking into the base and just like the progression of the rooms filling up and then the emotions of the waves that he gets caught up in are all very nice. You know, I think that how well an artist can draw water can say just like a lot about how good they are at depicting motion and I think it's very good here but then on the opposite side of things back to my sacrilege of just like some of the weaker aspects here I guess curious if you agree with me or not but 
the first two issues especially, I don't think the covers here are very good. I think that Ferdy Free's cover is good, although the text banner is a bit too big, but otherwise good. But I think that the cover to number 31 especially is just bad. I've always wondered what the fuck that was even supposed to be. <laughs> like this bright white outline, and I mean outline, vaguely of a spider, doesn't even have a head protruding. You know, it just has his face. It's the logo from it. the back of his outfit. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't look good to me here. But, like, just how harshly this outline is against the just solid red of the rest of the background. No scenery or anything, just contrasting harshly against the solid red with these teensy little bits of action between the spider's legs and then just sort of standard 60s text scrolls on both the top and bottom so that there's just a lot going on and 60% of it and then nothing going on and the rest of it and it's just really bizarre to me yeah um aside from 33 these are very unremarkable to quite bad covers i i really don't like 31s i don't know what the fuck is happening there i don't know how that was even thought of as being the direction to go in. Yeah. <laughs> and then to the opening splash pages on these, most especially in number 32 is the worst case. It's just way too much text, you know, going back to just Stan Lee being too verbose here, like, the splash page to number 32. The image we have is a shot of the underground, or rather, I mean, underwater base of Dr. Octopus that I feel like I would probably like and appreciate more if there was not so much damn text just crammed into this page between, like, spiky grab-attention shaped bubble and then oh here's another arrow and then here's some speech balloons and then here's another square and then there's another square with the credits and then another gigantic square with the title like this page is literally 50 percent text yep yeah uh a lot of my critiques of this revolve around, I think, some of Ditko's attitude leaking into Peter, where I don't think it works. You know, I mean, we all know that he winds up getting really deep into Ayn Rand right around this time. Ayn Rand, not Ayn Rand. <laughs> he winds up getting really deep into Ayn Rand right around this time, which really leaks into his work, and this is the start of Peter going down this weird self-interested route that I don't like as a take on the character and then Stan Lee just not shutting up but mm -hmm. yeah this is if this Sorry. be my destiny slash the master planner saga 
Um, I insist on calling it that, even if I can't find anyone else who does. If This Be My Destiny is a weird name for a story, guys. It's also... It's like... It doesn't really fit either, you know? Like, it doesn't really emphasize just like... Oh, is it my destiny to finally fail here? You know, like, it doesn't really actively raise that idea in such a way that it feels appropriate as a title like i don't yeah, necessarily I... hate it as a title for something but it doesn't really fit here yeah yeah <laughs> i i cannot disagree with that it is odd the final chapter is the title for the final issue in the story works really well uh, on multiple levels, because putting that on the front of the cover with Spider-Man looking like he's about to drown, held under this machinery, I think is a really great enticing, like, hey, Spider-Man could just drown here and and die and there won't be any more Spider-Man books after this, is a thing that could have maybe happened. You know, there's no guarantee that Spider-Man's going to keep on going story-wise. I think that works really well. And then obviously it's just the final chapter of this story arc. When but, it would have um, been at all feasible for a titular character like this to cease publication. I mean, I guess Spider-Man was probably already their biggest hit at this point. Or would it still have been the Fantastic Four is my... I don't know. Yeah, point being just that it was before he was Disney-owned corporate IP. Yes. Um... This is back when he was the property of two dudes fighting over him, and um, one of them was about to win. That said, um, for the longevity of the character, uh, I do think it works out pretty well that Ditko stops working on the book when he did. But um, I, I would love for his family to be getting money. He also should have been getting money and credit when he was still alive. There's my, my hot take. I uh, am glad that he stopped working on it when he did overall for the book. But um, the like whole situation is just disgusting. I guess just my last note real quick is just that while Harry looks like himself because of his horrible hair, Gwen Stacy looks nothing like what I expect Gwen Stacy to look like here because she oh. doesn't have her <laughs> hair band. So she's just a blonde woman. She's not wearing the hairband she wore when she died, so she's now unrecognizable. She has to have that hairband because everyone only remembers the hairband. She didn't wear the hairband all the time. Yeah, just like the consequence of her only appearances for 40 years being a flashback to one specific outfit that it's now like, oh, that wasn't grafted onto her skin. She could look different. They even put her in, like, different, in that outfit, in scenes that aren't set on that day. Like, that's just Gwen Stacy's superhero costume. The original Spider-Gwen design, as proposed by Dan Slott when he came up with the basic concept for the character, which was just, what if Gwen was the spider and Peter died? was for it to be a Spider-Manified, like, red and blue webbing version 
of that outfit. <laughs> Thank goodness they went in a different direction with that character. Yeah. Nonetheless, though, I guess, are you ready for me to tell you what you're reading for next week? Yes. So next week, you will be reading Venom Lethal Protector, the original one from the 90s. And by next week, you will be reading, I mean, next week, the listeners will be listening to Venom Lethal Protector because you read it and we already recorded about it like two months ago. But listeners, next week, we are getting goopy. Uh, it's it's goop part one of three. Yeah. Yeah, we're our, having... uh, our little goop tangent in the middle of our Spider-Man month. Yeah, but look forward to that. It'll be goopy, goopy, symbiote, Eddie Brock. In the meantime, thank you all for listening, and bye. Bye. Excellent to each other.